You're listening to the Touch of Flavor podcast, episode 77. You're talking about putting your fuck parts in my head where my brain lives. You know, in nature, only a handful of creatures mate for life. But isn't that, like, cheating? We can't do this 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Why not? The safety word is banana. It is so refreshing to be with someone who likes to fuck outside the box. This is the Touch of Flavor podcast. Dating and relationship advice by kinksters for kinksters. Join us as we tackle BDSM, sex, non-monogamy, and how to build extraordinary relationships in an ordinary world. And now your hosts, Cassie and Rigel. All right, folks. So today we're talking with Jay Wiseman. Uh, Jay Wiseman is a BDSM author and educator. He's a fairly prolific writer. You've probably heard of some of his books. Uh, SM 101 is one of the more popular ones. He's been writing books on BDSM since before that was really the in vogue thing to do. Uh, Jay's also one of the only, if not the only, expert legal witness when it comes to testifying around cases where there are injuries or deaths related to BDSM or alleged BDSM activities. So we talk about a number of topics today. We talk about how Jay got into BDSM, uh, talk a little bit about some of his books. We go into kind of what it means to be a expert witness who works with BDSM and some of his experiences regarding that. And before we wrap up, we talk about breath play and Jay's views on it. Uh, Jay has a reputation for being the person who speaks out against breath play and talks about why it's a bad idea. So we go into why he thinks that is and what some of the risks are surrounding breath play. So without further ado, let's hop into the interview. All right. Would you mind just talking to people a little bit about uh, what you do and how you got started, I guess? For about the last 30 years or so, I have made a living, uh, modest, but managed to keep myself fed and housed as a mostly a sexuality educator, primarily around uh, BDSM issues. I have an EMS background, and I've taught many first aid CPR classes, and I really like teaching first aid CPR classes to the kink community and the poly community, and I've taught them to rave staff and people who go to Burning Man and stuff like that. I kind of specialize in reaching out to alternative communities. And of course, in 2005, I graduated from law school, and I was a law school professor for a while, and one of the things I do from time to time now is uh, I do mediation work, and I also tutor kinky and poly law school graduates for the bar exam, and I got a pretty good success rate with getting them admitted to the bar. And since uh, 2000, the year 2000, I've been doing occasional expert witness work. That's awesome. And we're going to ask some questions about a lot of that. All of that, yeah. Um, But I'm curious, going back even further, what sort of got you into BDSM and how did you discover it? A little bit of your backstory. Because I know with looking at your work and things like that, there's a lot of the Jay Wiseman from the point of 
being an author and becoming an educator. But before that point, like what got you into kink? Like, how did you start out? Um, yeah, in many respects, that's not a particularly happy story. Um, I, I talk about this in SM 101, but in, uh, Somewhere around 1970 to 1971, I started having fantasies of tying up my uh, – to, to, to revert to the vernacular of the times, tying up my old lady. <laughs> and um, I did not know what to make of these fantasies. I mean, I was a Haight-Ashbury hippie, but uh, – Peace, love, and bondage was absolutely not the mantra of the times. And uh, one night I asked her if I could do that, and she basically told me, oh, hell no. And I think she was absolutely shocked that I would even make such a request. She's looking at me like, who are are you? I thought I knew you. This, what we are currently calling BDSM was much, much more taboo back in those days. There was basically no supportive literature at all. Um, I went to the psychology section of a local college library and found a book containing photos of women who were victims of sex murderers and stuff like that. Um, and it was a, a very, very dark time. There was no support anywhere until I, I think it was the November 1973 issue of Playboy magazine. And in the, Playboy advisor, there was a question, you know, dear, dear Playboy, my boyfriend wants me to tie him up. What should I do about this? And I'm thinking, oh, God, here it comes. You know, it's the get the hell out of there answer. I mean, the, the most sex positive book prior to that was The Sensuous Woman, which was published in uh, 71 or 72. And e even that author said that if he's into, so to speak, whips and chains, he's uh, sick and should seek professional help. So here's this question in Playboy, and Playboy responds with, well, you use ropes that are about this long, <laughs> and you do this, and you do that. And I have to tell you, it was an enormous weight lifted off of my shoulders to, to see that because I had faced nothing either in, in my personal experiences or what I had read except 100% rejection, uh, horrified rejection up to that point. And so here's Playboy saying that this might actually be okay and uh, – then they talked about a book called The Joy of Sex, and I had to go to my local bookstore about seven or eight times to see if they had it and actually 
picked it up and looked at it, and oh my God, they had an entire chapter on bondage in there. I mean, I quite honestly, I felt, and I don't say this to engage in hyperbole, I really felt like I had just been readmitted to the human race, that maybe my desires to tie up my partner during sex didn't mean that I was a monster. Maybe they didn't mean that these desires were going to escalate to where I caused a woman serious harm or, God forbid, even killed her. So this was just a tremendous relief. And about a year later in our local newspaper, the the famous Berkeley Barb with the famous personal ads in the back of the Berkeley Barb, there was an ad for an S&M group down in Hayward, California called uh, Backdrop. And of course, in those days, you sent a self-addressed stamped envelope to a post office box. Um, So I did, and ah, a few days later, I got the envelope back, and there was this club newsletter in it, and holy crap, they had classes on bondage and flogging and stuff, and they had master-slave dinner parties and slave auctions and stuff like that. And I screwed up my courage, and down there I went. This would be roughly July of 1975, and I've basically been in the community ever since then. That's, you know, that's an amazing, it's amazing how far things have come in the intervening years. Like, I don't think anybody in this day and age can replicate that experience of having those desires and not having some kind of reference point, not having immediate access to resources. I mean, that that's just uh, thinking about that. And it's not something that you really have to think about very much now, but that, that's got to be, you know, thinking that you're the only person who's into that and only having the references of like you're talking about, you know, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with the way uh, that stuff's viewed in like psychology and law enforcement circles. Um, yeah, I mean, that that had to be incredibly stressful, like to feel like you're the only the only person and like what's wrong with you. I had actually made a decision. Um, boy, this is this is kind of hard to talk about. But remember, I I had no frame of reference other than the. Well, there were a few bondage magazines in the adult bookstores. Uh, but other than that, and like the libraries and stuff, everything pointed exclusively to a mental illness, possibly a dangerously escalating mental illness. And I made up my mind, and this may sound strange in 2019, but I assure you it didn't sound strange in 1972. Uh, I made up my mind that I would commit suicide rather than harm somebody if it came to that. I even bought a gun for the purpose of committing suicide if I thought I was turning into somebody dangerous. 
And that's just awful to think that that is how far your thinking process had gotten, you know, that being alone, so alone to the point of planning the inevitable of being a monster. Like that's, I, I, I think back to even years ago when, when Josh and I first entered the scene, which is many years after you. And it was isolating because there wasn't as, there wasn't groups and there wasn't as much, you know, like it was kind of like the only way you could get out to an event was being invited. But there was at least reference, right? You could use the good old Google and find something on BDSM or find something on kinky sex and not necessarily feel so alone and feeling like you might feel like an outcast or the weirdo, but not to the point of, of my only option is being a monster. That's, that's super sad. It was a very dark time and I had no reason at the time to believe that that would ever change. You know, it's been established that I'm a monster the only question left is how dangerous a monster am I going to become? Well, and I think, you know, some of the people who are listening to this may not understand where you would get that impression, even if you didn't have like reference. But as you know, I spent quite a while in law enforcement and I'm, you know, I'm actually pretty familiar with how a lot of the texts that are written around this stuff, the view that they take of BDSM, right? Because it's, it's, there's a lot of like serial killing stuff that's associated with those behaviors and things like that. When you're looking at this, not from like a general cultural perspective now, but even, even in this day and age from like a law enforcement perspective and you're reading the books, S&M is not thought of very positively in that, you know, in, in the, that community or in those, those texts and things like that. So I, I have, I think a little bit of an idea of, of, the kind of material that you're talking about when you're you're talking about what you were looking at. Oh yeah, and and just like for your reference, uh, you might have heard of the famous slash notorious L.A. police chief uh, Ed Parker in the '60s. He he wrote a couple of police science training books. I think one was called Parker on Police, and I had something of an interest in police work. And so I, I had a copy of this book and I was reading about how they dealt with various things. And one of the things that was in uh, uh, Chief Parker's book was if you are interviewing somebody at their home and you find like pictures in a magazine of women and you know ropes and manacles have been drawn in by hand around their like wrists and so forth. I remember he said exactly, this person should be arrested on any pretext whatsoever. I've got, I've got two books actually sitting on my shelf. One of which is called Practical Homicide Investigation, which is widely considered to be like the Bible for death investigators. And another one, which is um, from kind of the, keynote death training that's put on by the FBI. And both of them, I can tell you, have some pretty dim, pretty dim views of BDSM in those books. So, and this is, you know, we're talking current editions of stuff. We're not even talking back when you're talking about. 
So, and you, you, you came uh, definitely a long way from there to getting involved in the community and then getting into a position of educating. Yes. How did that, uh, how did that transition take place? how did you get from, you know, point A and then, you know, you found the group and then getting to a point later of uh, writing the books on some of this stuff? Rope bondage was always, and I suppose still is, my first love in BDSM. And I had done what I could to study it. There was a bondage artist named Bishop who produced some really, really good artwork in the adult magazines. And he wrote a couple of articles about how to actually do bondage. And then... I had something of a martial arts background, and one day I was looking through a military hand-to-hand combat manual, and they had an entire chapter on prisoner tying. So, well, this is interesting, and uh, your tax dollars at work. So I learned a little bit about rope bondage from them, and I started to teach the occasional class in it. And we want to fast forward to about 1988, 1989. Um, it became very, very obvious that there wasn't, but at, at this point, you know, S&M is not as taboo. It's still pretty taboo. I believe it wasn't until 1988 that there was the first family court decision anywhere in America that being into consensual kink was not in and of itself proof of being an unfit custodial parent. Such a book didn't exist, and I had done a couple of modest books in the meantime, and I got encouraged to write the book. At this point, I've been in the community about 12 years or so. And the merchants who were selling the cuffs and the floggers and so forth and knew I was a well-known member of the local kink community and, and knew that I did some teaching, they encouraged me to write such a book. Because you, Prior to that, you had the first edition of the Leatherman's Handbook, which was about half gay male porn and uh, about half usable information. And in 1986, you had the Lesbian SM Safety Manual, which was pretty good. It was pretty good, but there was a feeling that um, the uh, definitive introductory book had not yet been written and needed to be, and I was a person who would be capable of writing that book. Long story short, so I did. <laughs> That's awesome. And so when you started going about deciding to to actually write the book, right, was it a asking others like what they thought should be in it or was it like this is exactly what I'm I'm planning on making this book be what was sort of your thought process behind it because you said it started with people saying that you should but when you started writing it what was sort of I guess your inspiration or your muse for doing so well by the time I decided to write the book I had been doing 
reasonably successful kink for about 14 years or so. And I had attended uh, many educational programs on it and, of course, uh, play parties and stuff. In fact, I I ran a private by invitation only male dom group called Gemini from 1978 to 1981. Uh, and of course, I had been working on the ambulances and had been around long enough that, you know, part of my job was to train the new guys. It was almost entirely men in those days. And I had taught many first aid classes. And so I was pretty familiar with S&M and I was pretty familiar with teaching. And so I, I kind of pretty much had the critical mass of what should be in a 101 level book. So I, I didn't do a great deal of consulting with others while I was writing it. As it happens, I was partners with uh, Janet Hardy at the time, and she published her book, The Sexually Dominant Woman, at just about the same time that I published the first edition of SM101. And we did have some of our friends read both books over in their entirety before we went to print just to make sure that we didn't outright contradict one another. <laughs> yeah, that'd be good. Yeah, it, it disagree, okay. Contradict, oh, they, our other community members would have been all over that. Yeah, you, you want it to not necessarily be, as you said, agreeing, but definitely not uh, <laughs> contradicting. I could see where that would be a, uh, a conflict of interest, especially if that's someone that you're in a partnership with. Yeah, it would make those long car trips awkward. Oh, yeah. So after writing the book and, and getting it out there, how did that change things for you? Okay, we're talking about, about like, you know, the, the, the fall of 1992, and we're just about getting ready to actually go to print with 101. And there was a, I had to make a very big decision, which was whether or not to publish it under my own name or not. And I confess I was very tempted to use a pseudonym, but by that point, I'd been in the community long enough to have many friends, but also have a few enemies. And I knew it was going to get out who had written this book. And I knew that my enemies would race each other to out me as the author of this book. And so really the only decision was to either publish it under my legal name or not publish it at all. And I'm thinking, well, my kids don't live with me. I'm self-employed. I can't get fired. I don't have any professional licenses that can be suspended or revoked. What can they do to me, really, except wag their fingers at me? And so I, I took the plunge and published it under my legal name. And that mostly worked out. <laughs> and how many – you've continued publishing in the meantime. How, how many books are you up to now? 
up to this point, I've published 13 books, of which six are currently in print. I've stepped away from doing a lot of traveling to teach so I can concentrate on writing more books. I'll probably be doing at least one book a year for the next few years. In fact, I have a book on very basic rope bondage that I'm writing now and in all probability, knock on wood, will have in print by the end of the year. So what are your, you said six books, are those all in the kink space or? Four of them are in kink space. Uh, SM 101, of course, and what my publisher insisted upon calling Jay Wiseman's Erotic Bondage Handbook. Those are my two best ones. Uh, And they sell quite well in in that niche. Uh, I also published a small book called Dungeon Emergencies and Supplies, which I'm proud to say is used in many DM training programs, dungeon monitor training programs. And I have a small book on basic rope bondage that's also in print. And I published a book of sex tricks series. And we did, we actually did four of those. And then repackaged and added some new material and so now we have the book tricks to please a woman and tricks to please a man and uh, those are both in print so they're relatively vanilla so the rope bondage thing is interesting i mean you've been you've been uh teaching on that a long time i assume that's something that you've seen change a lot over the intervening years, I mean, I can tell you, and I realize there's there's partially a uh, geographical element to this as well, but we really have seen, you know, in kind of the trends of things, rope come along. I mean, rope back, back when we came into the scene, maybe like, I don't know. I knew two people who really did rope, and I only knew one person who did suspensions. Yeah, it was like it was and it was different. Like it was different rope. It was a lot more like decorative. Um, you know, it was like different rope. Yeah, like corset kind of stuff. And it's been interesting, at least locally, to watch how that's kind of surged in popularity. How have how has that seemed to you with you teaching rope for so long? How have you seen that change over the the time, both in I guess the how popular it is and in what people are actually doing? Well, what people are actually doing is an interesting question because from what I can tell, not many people are actually doing things like suspension in their own homes. Certainly, there are a significant number of people who are doing that. My most requested bondage program, which I've taught, oh my God, I'm certain a three-digit number of times now. It's called Rope Bondage That You Can Actually Use, which involves very simple techniques that can be done in the average bedroom and don't involve any vertical lines under tension. It's like some simple arm harnesses and spread eagles and hog ties and stuff like that. I think there's perhaps a risk of a bit of a a wag the dog 
perception thing here because you know what's what's being done at the play parties and the clubs uh, can be very very different from what lots and lots of people are doing privately at home. I think also a lot of people don't have, and this is funny now that I'm talking about this, probably don't have the benefit of having a place to do suspension in their house. Funny thing is we're one of the few <laughs> few people I know who actually does, and we don't really do any suspension besides Amanda's soft ties, but nobody in our house really does suspension. We use it for uh, anything we're doing with like, you know, like uh, co-topping scenes or stuff where it's better to move around the person. We don't actually suspend anybody often. Mm-hmm. So... We have a full blown like um hoist. yeah, like a, a engine hoist in our living room ceiling. <laughs> yes, you you and uh several other people have such a device. It's very useful for many, many things. So something I'm else I'm curious to talk to you about as well is you so you made this shift from well, I shouldn't say shift because you're still writing, but you made this move from writing into actually getting involved in legal cases uh, that are BDSM related. I'm, I'm super interested in this because you're, there's not a lot of people doing that. And I think it's an incredibly interesting topic. Yes. Uh, what would you like to know? Well, how, how uh, first off, I'm just curious how you wound up, like what, what wound up pulling you into that? How did that happen? What wound up pulling me into it is a pretty good way to put it, actually, because it wasn't something that uh, I sought out. I do have a substantial bit of medical training. I actually went to medical school for a while and passed my four-year boards, but didn't have the money to graduate. But uh, I had a lot of training and education in anatomy, physiology, pathophysiology, and so forth. And I was very, very concerned about some of the stuff I saw online about breath play and so forth. And I started writing about my concerns about that, which ended up occupying much more of my time and thought than I ever anticipated that it would. And uh, what happened, I I think this happened first time in the year 2000, is uh, a lawyer in uh, Chicago who was representing a client who had done some duct tape mummification on a man and uh, the man had died. And was so his client is now facing murder charges. And the client was saying that what had happened was consensual and that the death was unintentional. And the lawyer went looking around and sort of by serendipity found some of my writings online about this and uh, contacted me. And so I ended up being retained in that case. And apparently this got my name on some sort of radar or some sort of list or something. I mean, everybody's on listservs. Plumbers are on listservs. Attorneys are on listservs. People into archery are on listservs and so forth, at least back in the day. And uh, then about a year later, I, I, I got another query about a homicide 
where there was a question of did it or did it not involve consensual breath play. It's kind of taken off uh, from there. I've I've done quite a few cases at this point. And starting about six, seven years ago, I started getting consulted in what I call questionable consent cases. And uh, I'm doing a growing number of questionable consent cases. Uh, I'm actually currently retained in one here in California. That's really interesting. So yeah, I guess when you're the uh, the only person doing it, uh, you're talking about your name getting around, but when, well, and, and, you know, especially with legal stuff, it tends to kind of build. So I'm curious. So when you're, you're doing this stuff, are you mainly consulting? Are you being called as an expert witness, both depending on the case? It depends on the case, but most legal cases, both civil and criminal, settle prior to trial. And I had actually done expert with, I had done what's called consulting expert witness work for seven years before I finally had a case that didn't settle and went to trial. Man, I wish I could have been a fly on the wall when they were trying to qualify you as an expert witness for that. That must have been amazing. <laughs> uh, it was rather harsh, actually. Uh, <laughs> I believe it. Well, as, as you may know, before an expert is allowed to testify to a jury, the expert is required to have a qualification hearing outside of the jury's presence. And... They threw heaven and earth at me, trying to get me disqualified as an expert. Eventually, the judge ruled that I, I was qualified to testify. It, but uh, after the hearing, I called a friend of mine and said, hey, I just got professionally dissed for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I've uh, so so for people, would you mind uh, for people who don't understand what an expert witness is and the difference between an expert witness and a regular witness? Would you just uh, clarify that for one second? The essence of the difference is an expert witness is allowed to express an opinion about something that is not within a matter of everyday knowledge. Uh, what are called lay witnesses, ordinary witnesses, are typically limited to, to testifying about what they saw, what they heard, and so forth. But uh, an easy way to illustrate it is let's say somebody goes to the store and buys a toaster, and they bring the toaster home, and they go to make toast in it, and they end up sustaining a very serious burn to their hand from this toaster. And so they sue the toaster company for putting a dangerous toaster on the market. And, you know, so I don't know how to evaluate a toaster. I'm pretty sure you guys don't know how to evaluate a toaster. So they would find somebody with like a PhD in toasterology <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> And, and he'll be the one person who's qualified as expert witness in toasters, honey. You know, <laughs> he'll be getting called. Oh, I case. assure you, they're out there. There are oh, expert I'm, witnesses on an almost infinite uh, number of subjects. Um, but this expert witness would be allowed to take the stand, and the jury would be allowed to hear the witnesses, the expert witnesses' opinion about whether the toaster was properly designed, whether the toaster was properly manufactured, and so forth. 
Yeah, it's uh, so. So what? What when they qualified you as an expert? What did they actually qualify you as an expert in? Like, what? What did they actually determine you were an expert in to be allowed to testify to BDSM related matters? Well, in my first case, it was a matter of the question of is suffocating or strangling somebody. Some, during sex, something that might happen under consensual circumstances. Yes, but uh, now that's that's really, yeah, no that that must have been an amazing. So, are you typically retained by defense or prosecution, or depends on the case? I assume. I'm typically retained by the defense, but I have worked for the prosecution. And in fact, my very first case uh, was a civil suit where I was retained by the plaintiff. Uh, he went to a prodom pro sub studio um, and signed up for a, a no pain scene and got the holy living crap beat out of him, <laughs> got anally raped with a strap on. It left him with post-traumatic stress disorder and with impotence. And he sued. Wow. And the uh, defense was trying to argue, hey, dude, you signed up to be tortured. You got tortured. What's the problem? And I was retained by the prosecution or the, the plaintiff in a civil suit. Say, no, they had a, a negotiation ahead of time. And in fact, he'd even filled out a form ahead of time, which – was obtained in discovery and like, no, these are the agreements about what will and will not occur. And he had a reasonable expectation that these agreements would be honored. Does the, uh, kind of a, does the NCSF tap you at all for any of the cases they get involved in? Yeah. Uh, I think I'm the person they have on speed dial for anything related <laughs> to breath play. I actually want to talk about that before we get off, and I, I, I'm still I want to I want to bump this this expert witness thing a little more. So how how many of these cases do you wind up getting? Um, I get one or two a year, on average. And how so? Something that I'm interested in, and I'm I'm surprised we don't see a little more of is, or maybe we do, and we just don't hear about it very much. Well, there's kind of there's kind of two parts of this that really interest me. Besides, I just think the whole expert witness thing is super cool. One, it's, it's not it's not fun. Um, uh, we I've, we both have experience in being around homicide victims, and uh, the stuff I do now. I, I thought when I started running ambulance calls, I was done with things like homicide, uh, and uh, no, I, I end up reviewing medical reports and looking at crime scene photographs and so forth. There's, there's very little about being an expert witness in what I do that's fun at all. I, I, I tell people it's my least favorite way to, to make money. Like, like in my, my last breath play homicide, a uh, vibrant, girl in her mid-twenties, an avid dancer, you know, she's she's dead and he's going to spend the rest of his life in a California state prison. And it's not fun, Josh. It's not fun at all. No, I, I'm, I'm perhaps being a little overly glib. Uh, I've, I've spent enough uh, 
Yeah, I I understand what you're saying on that end. It's more just um, I think it's it's interesting from a factor of talking about, well, A, uh, just the getting qualified as that, as I said, is, is, is an incredibly interesting thing to me. But I, I, what I, what I really am, I think is an interesting thing about it with where you're at with it. Isn't the, the day to day, you know, what you're having to deal with and see and getting hammered on the witness stand. It's the, as this stuff becomes more mainstream, there's so many questions and there's, there's questions as to, like you say, where there's people who are in situations where there's stuff that happens consensually um, that they wind up getting charged with, which I think uh, doesn't happen nearly as often as people think it happens, but does happen. And then there's the other end of it, which is I've seen even professionally, and I'm aware of, of, of a few more cases where BDSM has been claimed as a defense in a case that was clearly not BDSM related. It was clearly like an after the fact defense and being in a, a position to help those kind of guidelines be set in terms of the, the case law around it, I think is just an incredibly interesting, uh, although I'm sure certainly not at all fun place to be. Yeah, it 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 can be. I mean, I I have a unique set of credentials. I have substantial medical knowledge. Uh, I've been in the SM community for over forty years, and I've written a couple of best-selling books about it. And of course, I'm now a former law school professor. So if you look at where BDSM and medicine and law intersect, there's that Venn diagram, there's not a lot of space in that Venn diagram. And there's, there's this aging hippie out there in San Francisco who seems to be the best well-known occupant of, of that niche. So it, it, it is work I do feel I'm uniquely qualified to do. Yeah, I'm I'm really so have you been called into a case at all? I'm 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 curious if you've been called into one of those cases where the uh I'm I'm thinking of a case in um uh I mean I've seen I've seen quite a few just it's domestic abuse that it's claimed that it's kinky stuff, but I'm I'm thinking of a case in Pennsylvania where the guy claimed it was kink, but he also like electrocuted his wife to death and also had like told a couple people ahead of time that he was going to kill her. And so have you, I'm, I'm just curious, have you ever been called in to something to say like, uh, no, this was not consensual in spite of the fact that the defense is claiming that it is. Let me think I've, I've been called in on some cases where what happened was rather extreme and Sometimes the facts can be difficult to be certain about because, as as you know, in some cases, the only difference between a consensual and a non-consensual act is the arrangement of the neurons inside the brain of the recipient. It's It would be entirely possible for a third person watching what was going on to not be certain whether or not it it was consensual so 
so sometimes it's difficult. But yeah, I've uh, like I was I I was retained by the prosecution in a fatal fisting case some years ago, and uh, the facts of that particular case made consent pretty much impossible to argue. The uh, massive degree of trauma sustained by the victim pretty much made considering this to be consensual uh, not plausible at all. You missed Cassie's face when you said fatal fisting. Yeah, I'm just like, I've I've done a lot of fisting of people in my time and the ability to make that fatal, like, I don't even want to know what that even consists of. Like, that's just shocking to me. Fisting fatalities are actually not as rare as people might think. Uh, The typical scenario involves uh, a rectal fisting, and for some reason or other, a small tear happens in the uh, wall of the large intestine, and uh, fecal matter spills into the peritoneal cavity, and infection sets in. And that can be be fatal. When uh, Greenery Press published our book on vaginal fisting, I spent a couple of days in the UC San Francisco Med School Library researching this topic. And uh, yeah, yeah, it, it can happen. The particular case that I was involved in involved uh, a horrendous degree of both vaginal and anal trauma, and the victim apparently uh, bled to death. Yeah, it's going to be hard. uh, The degree of trauma in that case, just no, there's no way on God's earth this is reasonably consensual. So speaking of things that uh, I guess are are more common, more common to cause problems than people typically think, I'm actually interested in talking about breath play for a bit. So you're, you're pretty commonly known as the person who takes a pretty hard stance against breath play. How did that come about? Somewhat, uh, sort of like with the expert witness stuff, somewhat unintentionally. Uh, I think you basically have to go back to the the infamous news group Alt-Sex Bondage back in uh, 1994. And a guy on there was... Now, again, I, I am a medically trained person. And... A guy was talking about what happened when he strangled his sub, and I, I looked at that and I said, um, "That's that's wrong, as in that's factually inaccurate. That's not what happens to a body when it's strangled. And if he's strangling someone based on misinformation, this is not a good thing." And so I went on the internet and I told a uh, perhaps somewhat narcissistic male dom that he was wrong about something. And uh, as the saying goes, then the fun began. <laughs> so I'm going to, I'm going to, while I have you, you, I've actually talked about this before a little bit, but while I have you on here, I'm going to ask the questions that I think that people are, are interested in hearing. Um, I guess the first thing would be what what is it that everybody gets so wrong about 
like what's the thing that they're misunderstanding and that so many people think that breath play is safe when it's not like, what is it that they're not grasping in that? Well, okay. Uh, well, well, breath play is an umbrella term and, we can meaningfully subdivide it into suffocation and strangulation. And if we look at strangulation, which and which I think there's I don't think there's a lot of disagreement that you can get into more types of trouble more quickly with strangulation than you can with suffocation. How are we actually because I would I would subcategorize it down to three and maybe that isn't from from a a mechanistic uh, standpoint, although it may not be from a physiological standpoint, but I would. So I'm curious how you're using the word strangle. But so when I when I when I typically think of it coming from more of like a martial arts background, I think of strangulation as, you know, restricting blood flow, choking is compressing the airway and then suffocation is more of like a just restricting air without actually compressing the the trachea in any way. Are there, is that kind of a, a false difference from a physiological standpoint between what I'm calling choking and suffocation? Well, I, I, I think we can use different types of terminology for different things. But basically, as I see it, strangulation is anytime you're squeezing the neck. Okay. You're involved in some form of strangulation where suffocation is uh, restricting breathing other than by squeezing the neck. So like putting a plastic bag over somebody's head would be a form of suffocation. Okay. So I, we kind of went off on this, but so what, I guess what first off is from your perspective is all forms of breath play unsafe or only certain, certain of these subdivisions? Well, um, there's no human activity on earth that's safe so i think there's there's a certain baseline risk in everything we do there's a certain baseline risk in every form of bdsm we do i think uh, particularly in strangulation there's the potential for some landmines to be there and I don't think the average person who's looked into this is uh, aware of that. But we've, you know, we we know what happens to a body when its neck is squeezed, and we know that in some cases, squeezing somebody's neck can produce a cardiac arrest in only a few seconds. And we've got the case reports that document this. And it's difficult to impossible to squeeze somebody's neck to any significant degree. Uh, that doesn't involve at least some possibility of stepping on this landmine. And there's no way you can really take that risk out other than possibly by <laughs> pre-medicating the bottom with with certain drugs which is on a practical matter just almost never feasible so and so these landmines you see more with the what you're calling strangulation than suffocation yes although we do have case reports 
uh, in the forensic pathology journals and textbooks of sometimes even a few seconds of suffocation uh, causing a cardiac arrest. We even have case reports of people holding their own breath long enough to actually precipitate a cardiac arrest. So this is, I know this is a question that you get, uh, but I'm, I'm curious as to the answer. I think, and I think we have, I think we talked about this years ago, maybe, but uh, I wouldn't mind our listeners hearing your answer on it, which is, so, you know, I've, I've got a, a pretty significant martial arts background, both professionally and not professionally. And I think that when people hear you talking about, you know, if any time you compress the neck, you're potentially running a risk of putting somebody in cardiac arrest, why at like, you know, jujitsu gyms or judo gyms or other places where this takes place pretty regularly, don't we just see people dropping over? And I know you have an answer, but I'm curious as to, I'd like our listeners to hear it. Sure. It, it really cannot, in the face of the evidence in the forensic pathology literature and the case report, I don't think one can really advance a strongly defensible argument that there is no risk of causing a cardiac arrest by, uh, in one way or another, constricting somebody's neck. Um, so what we're left debating is the probability of it occurring. Um, we know that in a a very healthy 20-year-old uh, constricting their neck for a relatively short period of time is a very, very low probability uh, group. Whereas uh, if you take a 70-year-old like, like me, I'm 70 years old and my health isn't what it was, my risk is uh, higher. I know when I testified in my first homicide case where this was an issue, I was able to identify nine risk factors to the court that uh, would increase a person's probability of suffering a cardiac arrest from having their neck squeezed. And as it happened, the deceased uh, had three of these risk factors. Um, and also, there are about six or seven other mechanisms besides squeezing the neck that can also trigger a cardiac arrest. Uh, it, it basically all boils down to the heart being strongly stimulated by the vagus nerve. But we see this in people experiencing sudden severe fear. We see this in people experiencing sudden severe rage. Um, sudden severe pain can do it, particularly to the cervix in women and the testicles in men. Uh, I got a case report out of Singapore where a man and a woman got into a fight over like, I think over a parking space and she squeezed his testicles really hard and he went into cardiac arrest and, uh, did not survive the incident. And, uh, that risk had been previously noted in the forensic pathology literature. Uh, pressure on the eyeballs can do it. Uh, choking on food can, can do it. Every now and then you get a case report of somebody who starts to choke on a piece of food and in about 30 seconds or so, they fall to the ground in cardiac arrest. Well, 
that almost undoubtedly that person almost undoubtedly did not run out of oxygen. Uh, you, it's one of the classic ways it happens, particularly in people over fifty, is by heavy straining during a bowel movement. I actually went out on calls like that when I was on the ambulances. I, I think you talk to any fire or EMS first responder who's been on the job for more than a couple of years, they'll they'll tell you that uh, they've been on similar calls. So there's at least half a dozen causes or triggers of strong vagal stimulation of the heart, which can produce cardiac arrest. And one of these is a uh, compression of the neck in general and compression of the carotid sinus bodies uh, in particular. So, and, and well, you know, taking that into account and, and along with, I mean, a lot of the other things that you mentioned as well are things that could be triggered during a scene. I'm curious then, do you, you know, is your, is your professional opinion that, uh, you know, and I'm taking your, your comments about risk at a, you know, you had a, obviously a very good point with that, which is nothing we do is safe. But do you feel then is the position that you advance that it's, you know, compression of the neck is so risky compared to other things that we do that it really just shouldn't be done in a kink setting? Well, I, I, I think we uh, venture on the territory into dangerous grounds when we start using words like should and shouldn't. Breath play is always somewhat medically unpredictable. You're always rolling the dice when you do it. And the, and if you get a bad dice roll, what you get is a cardiac arrest. And the probability of surviving that outside the hospital is very low. So it's medically unpredictable and it's legally indefensible you know could you you know could consent is just not a defense it might possibly if if the da was satisfied that this was consensual maybe it would get you charged with a lesser degree of criminal homicide but uh, uh, you're, you're, you're not going home for quite some time. Uh, so it, it's, it's kind of a Russian roulette risk model. I, I've been known to say people like doing breath play is like jumping out of an airplane and you've got a parachute on, but you don't know how high off the ground you are. Your plane is in fog and your chute needs 500 feet to fully deploy. Fair and enough. any given time that you jump out of the plane, that's the risk you're taking. And it can go, it can be fatal within seconds. It's, 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 it's not a DMable practice for that reason. Cool. I think I'm pretty good with that, you, Cassie. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, I felt like we couldn't uh, we couldn't let this go without touching that topic. So, especially since you brought it up a few times in the. And I will add that uh, I'm one of the few people in the entire BDSM community who's ever actually been inside a courtroom where somebody is 
dead. And now the defendant is arguing that they died due to a consensual activity. And it is just an incredibly grim, draining human experience. Uh, one person's life is prematurely gone. Well, basically, one person's life is destroyed medically, and another person's life is destroyed legally. And these deaths are like a bomb going off. You know, when bombs go off, they have a, a blast radius. And so the people at ground zero are destroyed, but all of the people who loved and cared about both of them are traumatized. I mean, I've sat on the witness stand and I've looked out into the gallery of the courtroom and I've seen the looks on the faces of the family members who've had someone they love uh, get killed this way. And I, I've seen the look on the faces of the family members who have someone they love who's now charged with murder. And that's awful. Cool so to speak well no i wasn't saying cool to that i was saying cool to i think where we're at i'm i think it's a good conversation yeah um you have anything else on the breath plan jay no not not really <laughs> um, everything but anything else you need to say on the breath plan <laughs> i i've actually you know my fellow bdsm author uh, John Warren was also hanging out on alt sex bondage when this first when this topic first came up, and I have been known to say that if I had known how opening my mouth about this subject would have affected my life and my career to the extent that it has, I would have let John answer the damn question. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's funny if there isn't anything else I think we're ready for our speed round what about you um, okay although if you're going to ask me 10 questions in 60 seconds I'm not sure I'm going to be able to answer any of them but go ahead <laughs> well there hasn't really been too many people who have actually accomplished it Had a couple people have been very determined but yeah, yeah for the most part I think really the only person who's ever completed all of the questions in the 60 seconds was our kid um, we had an episode. Uncomplicated answers. Yeah, so. we had a an episode that we did where we changed his voice to a chipmunk voice to answer questions about being a kid who has poly parents, and he uh, busted through the questions really well. But we have yet to have an adult. We had one more, but I can't remember who it was. I think actually get through it. I don't. I don't think we did. The idea is to try. <laughs> the real idea is just the first question that comes, the first answer that comes to the top of your head. That's really the point of the time limit. Yeah. Okay. All right. So what's something you're not very good at? Suspension bondage. Best piece of relationship advice you've ever received? Don't go to bed mad. What are three things you couldn't live without? Blue cheese dressing, the internet, and oxygen. What turns you on? Bondage. Tell me something that's true that almost nobody agrees with you on. Didn't we just do that? <laughs> <laughs> I think we did. Okay. All right. Good point. A book you'd recommend for our listeners? Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. 
what is your biggest fear? Ooh, um, something happens to my kids. What's the most adventurous thing that you've ever done? It could be a sexual story or not. Running into a burning building with no protective equipment to get some people out. That's pretty adventurous. Who is your movie, TV, famous person crush? Richard Dreyfus. What's something you're working on right now that you'd like our listeners to know about? My upcoming book on bondage. What's the name of it? Or do you know yet? It's tentatively called Rope Binding for the Only Occasional Binder. Okay. And where can our listeners find you online? FetLife or Facebook or jwiseman at yahoo.com. Okay. All right, Jay. Thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a great conversation. It's been great to talk with you guys. Let's do this again. Thanks for listening to the Touch of Flavor podcast, where we're building relationships outside of the box. Got a question about kink, power exchange, or open relationships that you've been holding on to for years? This is the place to ask it. Submit your question at atouchofflavor.com slash ask, or leave us a voicemail at 833-ASK-TOF1. 